We come this Lord's Day to consider again the subject, the God of all comforts. Today we shall cover the great comfort of a new covenant with better promises. God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By that oath He was made the surety of a better covenant of salvation, the new covenant. Jesus never has to make a sacrifice for His own sin, for He has none. But the ultimate glorious purpose of Christ being our perpetual perfect high priest is this. Christ offered a one-time all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins when He offered up Himself. That priesthood which God swore to Christ with an oath entailed the requirement that Jesus provide a suitable offering for the saving of His people. That suitable offering is found in no other place than the body and blood of Christ Himself. Chapter 7 of Hebrews ends with this, The law makes men priests who have infirmities. How could it be otherwise? For all men have sinned. Death has come to all men because of their sin. The inferiority of Aaron's priesthood flows from Aaron being a sinner. And so you see that the law and our sin against it makes it impossible to appoint a suitable person, a suitable man to be our priest. No wonder Aaron could never offer a perfect offering. No wonder he was really unsuited to be a high priest before a holy and righteous God. No wonder Aaron sometimes betrayed his people before God because the law never saves anyone. By the law is the knowledge of sin. The best that any law could ever appoint as a priest, therefore, would prove to be inadequate. But the word of God's oath to Christ makes the Son of God, our priest, consecrated forevermore. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He is perfect and righteous and faithful as our high priest. And Christ has offered up Himself as our sin offering and intercedes to God for us forever. Hebrews warns Jewish believers that they dare not go back to the old covenant, the Mosaic law, for therein is no righteousness to be found, no sacrifice that takes away sin, and only a defective, sinful, and doomed priest. But under God's oath to Christ, we have an everlasting priest with no flaws, who never fails to save his people. On top of all that, he is the Son of God, God incarnate in our humanity. It turns out that no matter what system of laws or cultural traditions or religious schemes appoint men priests, they all have infirmities and ultimately they all fail in their priesthood. The Roman Catholic false religion claims to anoint men priests and even blasphemously claims they are like Christ of the order of Melchizedek. But they are full of sin and corruption, even as they usurp the pure and holy prerogatives of the Lord Jesus, who is the only true priest of that noble order. They offer polluted sacrifices, the so-called mass, and tell the people that it is a propitiatory offering and can take away their sins. 
In truth, they are no better than the false priests of Baal or Jeroboam's priests for his golden calves or everybody who exalts themselves to take the power of Christ to save into their own miserable and sin-cursed hands. How dare anyone assign to sinful men, men with infirmities, the duties and powers and prerogatives of the Lord Jesus, who is our only high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the only one who experienced all our travails and sorrows and pitiful circumstances, yet without sin. Though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor. When Jesus came to offer Himself at Calvary to take away our sins, He wore no fancy clothes, He flashed no gold Rolex watch, had no riches to wallow in like so many of our religious leaders and popular preachers today. Though He is God, He also and forever will be a man. And He came lowly and condescending to save His poor people. He came as a servant to give His life a ransom for His people. One day when Christ returns in His power and glory and majesty and every eye sees Him, we will fully grasp just how puny and miserable and worthless and degraded were all the ones in this world who pretended to be priests who could save poor sinners. What great comfort God has given to us by the oath He made to Christ to appoint Him such a glorious, perfect high priest for His people whom He loves and whom He died to save. Now, Hebrews chapter 8 starts out with a little summary text. Verse 1, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Now here we see the writer reasserting the supremacy of Christ as a better high priest, exalted to the heights of splendor and glory, and a minister of the sanctuary, that is, the one in heaven, not the one made on earth, the true tabernacle, he puts it, which the Lord pitched and not man. Now this is a reminder to these Jewish believers that all the tabernacle and all the temples and all the altars and all the veils and the gold-plated walls and columns and so forth, that all of those are mere tabernacles pitched by man. They cannot begin to compete with the tabernacle in glory which is pitched by God. So you see, He is offering this as another enticement to them. Why would you want to go back to the tabernacle pitched by man when we have a glorious high priest who is God of God and man of man, who is there in the real tabernacle, in the presence of God, in glory, seated at the right hand of the majesty. It's not man-made where Christ is appointed to minister these days. It's in the majesty in the heavens in glory. That's where our priest after the order of Melchizedek is currently residing. The writer is pointing out to these readers that Christ fulfills the type and the shadow 
of the Old Testament priesthood and replaces it with far better on every point, a far better priesthood than any of them could ever have exercised. A better priest operating in a better tabernacle in glory. How can you turn away from such a great high priest as is our Redeemer? There is a fundamental work of a high priest, which we've touched on before, and that is found in verse 3. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. Now here is one of the chief characteristics of why you have a priest, that they might offer gifts and sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. This is one of the chief purposes of a high priest. He is to offer these sacrifices to God. And so therefore, if Christ is a high priest, He must be given something to offer. He must have somewhat to offer by way of gift and sacrifice to God Himself, mustn't He? Implicit in the oath of God that Christ would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek is that Christ must have a sacrifice to give. That's better than the sacrifices that the priests of Aaron gave. And of course, the writer of Hebrews has already disclosed what that sacrifice is. Christ offered up Himself. He made a sacrifice of Himself unto God. He's reminding them though, you see, He's tying it in like it hadn't been tied in enough already. He's tying it in even tighter that this is why He is a priest and this is His duty as a priest and because He is in an exalted and glorious sanctuary now, not one made by men on this earth, but one in glory, and because... He is a more noble high priest and one who ever lives to make intercession for us. He's got to have an offering to make in the place of the offerings, the miserable, bloody offerings that the Aaronic priests offered, which could never take away sin. So what is his offering going to be? It is that he offered himself. He's tying in the duties of the priesthood in this verse with what he's already revealed Christ did in the previous chapter. He offered up himself once for all. That's the offering that corresponds to the offerings that earthly priests were supposed to give unto God. Now, in verse 4, we see this, For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. So if he was just an ordinary man with no special appointment by God as an exalted high priest, if he was just one of us walking around here with no special appointment or anointing, he wouldn't be offering up things to God because we already got priests according to the law that do that. According to the Mosaic system, the animal offerings you see had already been assigned to other people, that is, the tribe of Levi, the house of Aaron, those priests had been assigned to the imperfect priests which the law appointed. You remember last chapter, the last verse. 
that the law makes men priests who have infirmities. Infirmities. And here Hebrews is pointing out that the animal sacrifices that we all were so familiar with as Jewish believers would be, those have already been assigned by the law to the priests who have infirmities. That is, the sinful, corrupt, degraded, doomed priests. Those are the ones who've been assigned to make those animal sacrifices for sin. So Christ is not going to be in a position to make those animal sacrifices. I think he would just be some sort of a imposter priest usurping the law of Moses, you see. Offering up the sacrifices that they had offered. And do you remember how many people got in trouble in the Old Testament? Think of King Saul particularly. For offering up sacrifices when the law said other people were the priests and they were the ones who were supposed to offer up the sacrifices. So Christ can't offer animals as a sacrifice to God. Those have already been assigned to the priests who have infirmities. So Christ, to be a better priest, must be assigned a better sacrifice, which, as Hebrews has already pointed out, is Himself. And remember, it was not just a sacrifice of Himself. It was a one-time offering of Himself, not repeated, not done over and over and over again. And why was that? Well, because He had no sin of His own. He was the perfect and pure sacrifice before God. Even the animals could not meet the high standard that God required as a substitute for the judgment of the sin of His people upon themselves. But Christ, being the perfect man as well as God manifest in the flesh, why He was morally pure and spotless and undefiled, he had no sins of his own to sacrifice for. And so therefore, he accomplishes the salvation of his people by one sacrifice offered once for all at the cross. Christ, to be a better priest, must be assigned a better sacrifice, which is himself. It is himself. Then in verse 5, the writer says, that the Old Testament priests serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, saith God, that is, that thou, Moses, make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. So here the writer is being explicit in tying the old Testament sacrificial system and its priesthood, which was made of men who had infirmities and who offered offerings which could not save, that they were serving as an example and shadow of heavenly things. They were pointing us as pictures, as imperfect pictures towards the heavenly and the true. They were acting out in human form and with flaws and imperfections and sins, nevertheless pointing the Lord's people towards the One who would come, who would fulfill all things, who would be the perfect priest, not one with infirmities, who would be 
A priest not under the Mosaic law, but under the new covenant. The priest who offered up the perfect sacrifice that could take away sin. That is himself, who would be the one who seated in the majesty, at the majesty on high in glory, making intercession for the people for all eternity. These Old Testament types and shadows were being acted out by frail, faulty, and sinful men at the commandment of God that we might have a foresense, a foreimage, if you will, a preview of the better which was yet to come in the Lord Jesus and in the solemn oath that God assigned to Him a priesthood forever after the order of Melchizedek. They serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. And then he he points out that we know that God was signaling this truth when He told Moses to be sure to make all the tabernacle and the instruments and the altars and the ark. Be sure to make them after the pattern that He'd been shown on the mount. That is that there is an ideal that the tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple, the earthly sacrificial system, the earthly priesthood, there is an ideal which it mimics in the material of this world and of this time. Christ as priest and sacrifice thus is a completing of the picture and shadow of the Old Testament mosaic system. That is, that God revealed to Moses that what he was to build was after the pattern of the true tabernacle and the true sacrifice and the true priest that were to come. And then at verse 6 we read this, But now hath he obtained, that is Christ, hath obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator. He is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. And he's already mentioned that Christ is the one who guarantees a better covenant, a new covenant. But now he specifies that because Christ has obtained this more excellent ministry, that is His eternal priesthood after the order of Melchizedek in the sanctuary that's in heaven made by God, with the better offering that is Himself once made for the sins of His people, not being Himself a priest who has impurity or who has failure or who has infirmity, that He has therefore obtained a more excellent ministry by how much more also He is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. In a sense, Aaron and his priesthood was a mediator of a covenant in the sense that he represented man to God and he represented God to man and he did a lousy job of it both ways, didn't he, at times. But now Christ is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. If we look at the fundamental promises of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Covenant fundamental promise was life in exchange for obedience. Obey this law and live. Keep my commandments and live. Whereas the promise of the new covenant is life by grace 
God graciously pardons His people, puts His law in their hearts, causes them to be obedient, and refuses to remember their sins against them anymore. Now these are very, very much different from the promises of the Old Covenant, aren't they? God didn't promise that the people would keep the law. He told them what would happen if they didn't, and He told them what would happen if they did. But they're the ones that promised to keep the law, and they didn't, and they couldn't. And so the covenant was broken. You see, but in the new covenant, the promises are all made by God to His people. Read the new covenant. There aren't any promises made. There are consequences that accrue to the Lord's people under the new covenant where He causes them to know the Lord. He causes them to know His law. He causes it to be in their heart that they might obey it. He takes away their unrighteousness. In the old covenant, unrighteousness was punished by death, wasn't it, ultimately? In the new covenant, unrighteousness is punished somewhere else, isn't it? And life and glory and promise is given to the people who are placed under the new covenant by God. Now these covenants from olden times were sealed and executed by a sacrifice of blood. If you go back and see one of the covenants that God made with Abraham, there's a cutting of the covenant as they put it, a sacrifice of an animal or multiple animals, and God passes between the animals, and Abraham is in a trance of some sort, described as a horror of his mind as he sees these things. But the Mosaic Covenant is executed by blood. And the New Covenant is executed by blood, isn't it? The Lord Jesus' blood. That's the blood of the New Covenant. Now, one might ask, what does this shedding of blood do besides be a ceremonial marking of the promises being made by the parties to the covenant? Well, if you look at the Mosaic Covenant, we read it this morning in Exodus 24. It was a covenant where animals were slain at the base of Mount Sinai. And you remember, it comes right after the Lord had announced the Ten Commandments with His very voice. And the people begged Moses, please don't let God talk to us directly anymore. We can't stand it. And then the Lord goes on to articulate additional rather limited requirements. Later on, after they sinned at the golden calf, the requirements were greatly expanded, weren't they? But that's because the Ten Commandments and the limited statement of the law, which was given before Exodus 24, and is the context of Exodus 24's execution of the Mosaic Covenant by a sacrifice of blood, those were enough to doom us all because we could never keep them all. There's a story about a man who was being preached to about the Ten Commandments, and the preacher goes through each one of the commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven images. Thou shalt honor thy father and mother. Do no murder. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Don't bear false witness. Keep the Sabbath, etc. And the man sunk lower and lower and lower, and the preacher asked him, well, what do you think about that? How do you stand up? And 
the man looked up and he said, well, at least I've never made a graven image. So he was one out of nine, you see, he thought. But obviously, the graven image goes further than just to actually take a chisel to a piece of marble and carve something to bow down and worship. But the point is that before the Mosaic Covenant was executed with blood in Exodus 24, it had been announced or read out to them by the voice of God from the top of Mount Sinai. And they were terrified by it, but they made this one tragic mistake that we all probably know about already. Let's read what it says in Exodus 24. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one accord and said, All the words which the Lord hath said will we do. Now that was their that was their failure there. What they should have done was said, Oh, we're miserable people. We don't believe we can keep this. It's sort of the question of what might have been, you see. But they had some pride apparently, some hubris to believe they could keep those commandments. And you know, in the context of all the thunder and lightning and the consuming fire and the, the trumpets, the loud voice of God coming from the top of the mountain, maybe they were intimidated, maybe they weren't thinking clearly. And then it says Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and builded an altar under the hill, and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel, he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the audience of the people. And they said, All that the Lord hath said will we do, and be obedient And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant. Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Now, if you think about it, this is compared quite amazingly with what Jesus said the night He was betrayed. He said that the new covenant was executed and sealed by the body and blood of God's Son, God's Lamb, God's perpetual perfect high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we have two covenants. We have the old covenant under Moses sealed by this blood sacrifice and by this oath of the people that we will be obedient to the commandments of God. And Moses told them that I'm sprinkling this blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words which He has spoken and which you have spoken in response to Him. So then what did the blood of the Mosaic Covenant work? What did it work? It worked a witness of condemnation, didn't it? Against all the people. Because they didn't keep the commandments. They broke the covenant. What? How can that be? They swore they would keep it. It was signified by the sacrifices of the animals and the sprinkling of the blood of the covenant upon the people and upon the book of the law. How how, how can they just violate the covenant? It was a solemn oath between them and God. And yet they broke it. And you remember they, in the first recorded instance of them breaking it, was a mere 40 days later when they made the golden calf and took off their clothes and danced and sacrificed and 
claim that the calf was their God that brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Complete and utter blasphemy. So they broke the covenant. And the blood witnessed against them, you see, that they had broken the covenant. But the blood of Jesus that shed for the new covenant, to execute the new covenant, it is a witness, don't get me wrong, but it's not only a witness, it actually executes that covenant in such a way. Remember what Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The blood of the Mosaic covenant was a testimony against the remission of sins. That if you broke the covenant, if you sinned, if you had been disobedient, then you've broken the covenant and this blood stands against you. But when Christ shed His blood on the cross, it was for the remission of sins. It was the blood of the covenant, the new covenant, but it spoke the remission of sins. It brought about the remission of sins, not the judgment of sins on the people. Why? Because it was the judgment of our sins upon our dear Savior who stood in our place as our high priest of good things to come. You see, what the blood of the covenant of the old covenant did was execute condemnation. Nothing good came of it in the end. Why? Because the people couldn't obey the covenant. But the blood of Jesus, the blood of the new covenant, wrought all of the promises of the new covenant, which are what? That the people would honor the Lord. They would know the Lord. That God would put His law in their hearts so that they would be obedient to the commandments. And He would not remember their sins against them anymore. That's why Jesus said, this is My blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sin. You see, the blood of the new covenant speaks better things than the blood of the old covenant. The blood of the old covenant speaks condemnation for those who break the covenant. The blood of the new covenant speaks forgiveness of sin for those under the new covenant and also promises ultimately the fulfillment of all the other terms of the covenant. Why? Because in the new covenant there is no promise made by the sinner. All the promises are made by God. And they're all sweet and beautiful promises, aren't they? Noble promises. Promises long to be sought after by the poor people who were under the Mosaic Covenant. All they needed was a covenant where God promised to help them keep the law, to make them keep the law, to uphold them in keeping the law, to assure that they would keep the law. But no, under the old covenant, they were the ones assuring God they would keep the covenant. But under the new covenant, under the promises of the new covenant, it was God who was assuring His people that they would keep the commandments. But better than that, that He would not remember their sins, their transgressions against them anymore. And that is why you say that while the Mosaic Covenant was executed by this blood sacrifice of these animals, that didn't mean that it enabled anybody to keep the covenant or that it guaranteed the blessings of the covenant, but not so with our Lord Jesus. Christ's blood executes the new covenant 
for the forgiveness of our sins. In other words, it actually carries it out. His sacrifice is not simply the memorialization of the new covenant. It is the power that drives the new covenant that executes and fulfills the new covenant for all who are under it. Christ's blood of the new covenant works mighty good for His people whom He will save. And no wonder the Scriptures assure us that we have a strong consolation, a great comfort in the oath that God made to Christ, from which He will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, all this glory and salvation is wrapped up in that oath. And His unique priesthood, it is our deliverance from the judgment of sin by the sacrifice of this high priest to take away our sin. A lady by the name of Charity Lees Bancroft wrote this interesting poem. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me hence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, I look upward above and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. And so as we come to the Lord's table, we think of how it pictures the blood of the new covenant that executed all the promises that God made under the new covenant to His poor sinful people, that He would put His law in our hearts, that He would cause us all to know the Lord, that He would work a mighty work of obedience in His people, and that He would not remember against us our sins against Him anymore forever. The blood of the new covenant punished our sins in Jesus so that we might go free. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table and for the bread that pictures the body of Christ that was offered up on our behalf. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice in Your dear Son who, though He was rich, yet for Your sake He became poor, that we might through His poverty become rich. We thank You that His sacrifice at Calvary doesn't just commemorate or memorialize a promise that for our part we can't keep, but rather it executes, it fulfills, it empowers the promise You made in the new covenant to take away our sin, to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we thank You that He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
that he had the power to lay down his life. And he laid down his life so specifically that even pagan men watching saw very clearly what it was he was doing. He was delivering his soul up to death unto you in our place. He was and is always a righteous man. And we thank you that you have given us such a high priest with no infirmity, who made the sacrifice that takes away our sin, and who left us this feast to remind us of that death he would die only hours later that we might celebrate it for all eternity. We give you the praise and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us on the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed that He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for the remission of our sin. And the Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 233 in the black book. Fair is the sunshine, fairer still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry host. Jesus shines brighter, Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. Number 233.